0: She's sharp, pointed, and insightful. This is Stacy on the Right on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk.
1: Probably designed uh, to get attention. Um, it was designed to be caught. And uh, while it may be a, a, a device that could function, um, I think it was designed more than anything to, to strike fear in the hearts of those people who they were intended to target.
2: You always have the left ginning up, you know, angry, the mentally ill, storming the barricades and Republicans are standing there with a PowerPoint demonstration trying to explain how a wall or tax cuts will be better for you and improve the lives of lots of people. And now,
0: Stacey Washington.
2: woo Welcome to the show.
3: It's my pleasure to be with you. And guess what? We have a jam-packed show for you again today. So... I have so much, just so much content for you. And we're going to start off with some some, some hard truths. I'm going to share a few personal things with you. And the reason I'm doing that is because I think in this vast audience, 32 states, 800 communities, hundreds of thousands of listeners at any given moment on radio, that there's someone out there who might be going through the same thing as me. And so why not share What I'm going through so that you can learn from it and we can share together in this journey that we're doing, we're walking with God, walking in faith, learning in faith, everybody striving towards sanctification and and just waiting on God to do what he can do in our lives. And so we'll talk about that in just a minute. Today on the show, we have David Savavian. He's a deputy director for the American Conservative Union's Foundation Center for Criminal Justice Reform. We're also going to be talking about the Missouri Department proposing a traditional ammo ban and what can be done about it. We do have a uh, nice-sized audience in in the state of Missouri, and we want you to be armed with the information that you need, no pun intended, (laughs) to be able to uh, decide how you want to vote on that issue. And we're also going to talk about a study that shows that television in America has hit a record number of LGBTQ, etc. regulars. And what that means for uh, our viewing habits, the impact it has on our culture, and how what we watch on the screen really filters in not just into our homes, but into our psyche and what's normal um, in American life. And it's an intentional change that's being made. It's a cultural shift. And uh, if, if you don't feel like you're on board with it, well, the option is to turn your TV off to not buy the products that sponsor those programs because that's the only way you can communicate with them that you don't like what they're putting out. So we'll get into that as well. Right now, the title of today's show is Don't Be Distracted by the Bomb Scare. And I'm telling you, um, since none of the bombs went off, to me, that story was yesterday. Yeah, some new ones were found today, but none went off. So that's not the, the main deal. The main deal is the migrant caravan. That is going on still to this day. That's still going on, and the numbers in that caravan are growing. And, and we are going to get into, later in the show, I'm going to tell you, I found some information online that connects the government of Venezuela, who's funding this, per our Vice President Mike Pence, who has all of that top secret intel and information that he can share, and how that connects up with Russia and China and election interference. And for a group of Americans, namely the activist Democrats, who are so obsessed with that, you would think they would be uncovering this for the American people so we can understand why seven to 14,000 people, well-dressed with $1,000 strollers, are currently marching on America through Mexico, an ally of ours. Yeah, so we'll talk about that as well. Um, right now, I want to start off with the daily confession. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For thou art with me, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord Forever. Our companion scriptures for that today are Proverbs 1921. Many are the plans in a person's heart, but it is the Lord's purpose that prevails. And that's Proverbs 1921. Then the last one is Philippians 2, 12 through 13. God fulfills his purpose for believers. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. So why these scriptures? Why today? Well, I, I'm, I'm share some personal stuff with you. So because I'm on media and because I've done thousands, maybe over 4000 interviews on radio alone, that doesn't include the TV interviews, because I'm so pointed in my commentary and I bring such a strong perspective to things. A lot of people are under the impression that I'm like some robot. I don't have any feelings. And so when there's something to be said, when there's criticism to be leveled, or if there's some rude activity that needs to be leveled at someone, people can use the fact that I'm strong in my public persona to justify that by simply, she doesn't have feelings. She's not a person who has feelings. This won't hurt her. Nothing bothers her. She doesn't have feelings. I don't have to police my behavior. I don't have to treat her with respect, or I don't have to worry about what she might feel about this because she doesn't have any feelings. Now, obviously. That's not true. I have feelings and my feelings get hurt just like any other person. And so what I tend to do is I tend to operate in unforgiveness. When I locate the threat, I immediately want to let it out of my life. I want to excise that person or that group or that family or whoever it is. I want to cut them out of my life and I want to do whatever I can to never have any interaction with them again. Now, that's not what God calls us. God calls us to Interact with people to forgive them repeatedly as many times as he forgives us and when we operate in unforgiveness It sets up a stronghold for the enemy So our pastor has been preaching about forgiveness and I thought "Mm, I probably have a little unforgiveness in my life and woo boy I guess god was like I heard that. I'm gonna. I'm gonna help you understand where you are I was operating in a lot of unforgiveness So, you know how it is when you get done with a season of self-examination and repentance and you feel like you're finally turning the corner That's when your first test comes, when someone who maybe you respect, someone that you maybe even look up to, someone that you kind of almost set on a pedestal, if you will, will then show their true selves that they're a human being and that they're capable of making not just normal size errors, but huge errors. And when that happens, your old self that you've just repented and tried to turn away from will come roaring back and say, cut them out. They're dead to me. It's over. But that is not what God has for us to do. And this can be especially a difficult situation to be in if, let's say, you're praying for something at work or at home in your personal life, whatever, and you've been praying for it for years. It's in your prayer journal 50 times. It's something that even your friends know. If they're praying for you, that's something that you have. It's, it's, it's top of mind for you. You want this whatever it is. And then let's say you receive it. God is gracious and he's good to you and he gives you this this thing you've been praying for. And I'm not talking about houses or cars or anything. I'm talking about something that you feel like you, it's something that you're meant to do that you want to do. And that if God would give you that, it would be an extension of what you can do for him. It's it's, this is one of the desires of your heart. Well, when that happens, the first thing that's going to happen after that is you're going to see people that you probably respected or maybe even put on a pedestal begin to behave in ways that you're like, this can't be that person. That's where the Psalm 23 comes in. In verse five, it says, you prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. That is the description of you receiving God's blessings and maybe things that you've prayed and fasted for over years. You receive them and you're sitting at a table receiving God's blessings and your enemies can see it and they are, they're ticked, they're triggered, they're melting, they can't handle it. And that's when they're gonna launch off into attacks on you for receiving what God has for you. And that's when you have to decide if you're gonna obey God and forgive them, even if they don't ask you, or if you're gonna operate in unforgiveness. And so this hard lesson has prompted me to share it with you because I'm sure there's someone out there who's in this same situation. And my encouragement for you, and the daily confession that we have is in this scripture. God fulfills his purpose for us as believers, even if our enemies don't want him to. And what God has for you, no man can take from his hand. When God has a purpose for you and you're operating in it, resist the temptation to get into vengeance or payback or unforgiveness. Because that gets in the way of you walking in what God has for you to do. That enemy can't take what God has for you. But you can get rid of it by disobe- disobeying and not forgiving. So this Bible verse, this Philippians 2, 12 through 13 says, therefore, my dear friends of you, as, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now so much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God, not that Christian person you idolized. It's God, not that person that you thought was just amazing and now they're attacking you. It's not that person who is going to work in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. It's God. So we have to put our eyes back on him. And so I'll say for any person, if you're, if you're thinking about someone else, that that, pers- that person doesn't have feelings. That's why I can say this about them. That's why I can do this to them. That's why I can operate in this way. You're wrong. Every person has feelings. Regardless of their public persona, every person has feelings. And those feelings should matter to you if you want your feelings to matter to other people, and if you think you're hiding your negative, antagonistic, horrible feelings towards that person, you're not, they can see you a mile away. And that hurts them too. Now, you may not care. You may think you're justified or you may have your own reasoning or designs or purposes for it, but it doesn't escape God's eyes, just like it doesn't escape the person you think you're not hurting because they don't have any feelings. And in all things, you have to understand that While you're gnashing your teeth and having an upset moment, that person, you don't know what God has for them. You don't know what God wants them to do. And it's not your place to decide. So he prepares a table in the presence of our enemies. Our cup overflows. Elsewhere in the Bible, it says that when we obey God, his blessings will run us down. They will chase us and overtake us. And pass us up. In other words, the blessings will be in front of us and we will be in the midst of that blessing through our obedience because that's how much God loves our obedience to him. So I encourage you to continue to be obedient and to disregard individuals who are probably mistreating you because they've told themselves you don't have any feelings. Disregard that and cling to the scripture and know that when you see that, it's a hallmark of you being seated at the table in the presence of your enemies. And sometimes those enemies can be Christians, and sometimes they can be people that you previously thought were just fantastic, and you idolized them. Or maybe you thought they were someone that you could follow their example. And maybe not. But God has a purpose for your life. He has something for you to do. And you keep your eyes on that. Give your hurts and your cares and the the unfairness of it all to God, and let him take over And let him fix the situation while you continue to operate in what he has for you to do, which is mighty. It's great. The work that God has for you to do is something that is important. It's integral to the kingdom. You were ordained for such a time as this. You are equipped. You are well prepared. And you just, you go with that. You stick with what God has for you. And the last thing I'll say, (laughs) the first verse. Many are the plans in a person's heart, but it is the Lord's purpose that prevails. And so, you know what, haters? You can have all the plans you want, but the Lord's purpose will prevail. And I'll say for those who are um, the naysayers, nothing's been given over here. It's all been earned and prayed for and fasted for and prayed for some more. There is no giving when it comes to, well, you're just doing that because someone gave you that. No, not over here. Not only do I have feelings, but I also have earned what has been provided. And I'm confident in that and I'll never be dissuaded from that. We all have feelings. Consider where you're behaving and and know that it's all seen. It's all seen. It's all been observed. And you've been turned over to the Lord. I say the line of haters is long. Get in the back. All right, so we are up against the break. When we return, we're going to have David Savavian, Deputy Director for the American Conservative Union's Foundation Center for Criminal Justice Reform. He's going to join us to talk about President Trump moving towards a broad criminal sentencing reform. We're also to touch on exactly what that entails. What is this broad sentencing reform and should we be in favor of it or is it just giving criminals a slap on the wrist? As Christians, we have to be concerned for those who are imprisoned, but we also have to make sure that we don't incentivize crime in this country. All right, we'll be back with more right after this.
1: The Ministry of Preborn meets abortion-minded women right where they are and reaches them with the love of Christ.
4: We showed her love and we accept her right where she's at. If the baby's saved by what we do here and the mother's life is spared from the devastation of abortion, that definitely helps them in this life.
2: But this is not all that there is. We want our clients to know about Jesus. I got to see his heartbeat just looked like a little butterfly in a bubble. The Lord gave me that baby, and He gave me that baby for a reason.
1: The Ministry of Preborn runs and leads Christian pregnancy centers all over the country, helping abortion-minded mothers to choose life for their unborn babies. To find out more about how you can help save a baby's life, go to preborn.com or dial pound 250 and say the keyword baby. That's pound 250 and say baby. All gifts are tax deductible.
0: Hi, I'm Crawford Ritz with a Legacy Moment. I remember when Bill Bright, the founder of Crew, was diagnosed with pulmonary fibrosis, a terminal disease. He wrote a letter to the staff expressing his hope and confidence in God. He knew God could heal him, but he also said that no matter what happened, he was going to rejoice because he was going to be in the very presence of God. What a marvelous perspective. No matter what we're going through, if we belong to him, we're never without hope. Job demonstrated that kind of hope in Job chapter 19, verses 25 and 26. As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will take his stand on the earth. Even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God. Job expressed this in the midst of excruciating pain and suffering, and yet he says, "'I know that my Redeemer lives.'" There are three certainties we find in these verses. Number one, we have a redeemer and he's alive. We have one who has brought us back from the snare of the devil with his own blood and given us a hope in heaven. We have a redeemer. Secondly, he's coming back. I don't know what's going to take place in this life, but I know that my redeemer is going to return. He will stand on this earth. Then thirdly, we will be with him. I don't understand anything else in life, and there are times when we can't figure out what's going to happen the next second, but we do know that we will one day be with Him. Here's what I want you to remember today. For the follower of Christ, there is no such thing as a hopeless situation. We are forever His, and He is forever ours, and we will be forever with
1: Him. Crawford Lawrence is Senior Pastor of Fellowship Bible Church in suburban Atlanta, Georgia. For more information, go to livingalegacy.org, livingalegacy.org.
0: You can watch a live stream of the show on Facebook or YouTube at Stacy on the Right. Now, back to the show on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk.
3: Welcome back to the program. Perhaps you have never been to our website, stacyontheright.com. Check it out. Hit the subscribe button. Also, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram and make sure and hit the follow button on those. Our Facebook page is Stacy on the Right. And you can also find American Family Radio's Facebook page as well as Urban Family Talks. You should hit the subscribe button on those as well. Um, share the show if you are streaming us online. Share the show. Hit the share button so everyone will know what you're watching and that you love it. And we thank you so much for your ears, for our terrestrial listeners all over the country. So glad to have you with us today. It's Thursday. Um, Programming now, I actually am going to be doing the MC duties tomorrow at a prayer breakfast that is gathering together. I think our attendance is up to 160 now. Um, A prayer breakfast for pastors in the St. Louis area. And if you are in the St. Louis metro region and you're going to be there, I'd love to shake your hand at some point during the uh, program and say hello. I love meeting uh, just anybody who really is sharing in this journey with us where we're walking with the Lord and we're, we're trying to remain faithful. And this is the hard, hard work of, uh, you know, putting up with people n- not being nice, but people being people, right? That's m- one of my slogans. People are going to people. Um, so you got to, we, we have to know that. And also that we, we're the same. We, we inadvertently offend. We sometimes offend intentionally. We, you know, we we get outside of ourselves, we get ahead of ourselves, we get ahead of God and we, might we might be the the on the other end where we're the offender, um, but God has a prescription for all of that, and it's so good to know that and to be uh, just graciously received here on the radio. It's good to be with you. As we're working to get our guest, I want to get this uh, bit of information here from the National Shooting Sports Foundation. It's the Firearms Industry Trade Association. Full disclosure: I'm a member, and one of their alerts that they sent out. It was early, early this morning, Missouri Department proposes traditional ammo ban, voicing your opposition by submitting comments before October 31st. So that gives you just under two weeks. Actually, not really. That gives you about six days to leave comments. The Missouri Department of Conservation recently proposed two regulation changes that would ban the use of traditional or lead uh, shot for all hunting. The second proposal would ban the use of lead ammunition for dove hunting on 20 popular conservation areas. Now, this, um, this is interesting because um, these pr- proposals have the potential of pricing many hunters out of doing what they love, which is hunting. So this is a way of preventing people who are law-abiding citizens from engaging in a sport that they enjoy just because the sport involves firearms, which are one of the new taboos issued into us by the left. Leftists who've never owned guns, never shot them, don't even know the difference between a magazine and a so-called clip. They're going to propose legislation to ban certain types of ammunition so that hunters have to spend a lot more money in order to do what they love. Why? Because we don't have an overabundance of deer? Come on. We, deer are our natural food. That's why we find them wherever we live, because they are our natural food. That's what God made them for. That's why we hunt them. That's why they're so plentiful. So, Please voice your opposition today by submitting comments in opposition to each of the proposed bans. The comment period will close on October 31st of 2018. I will put the link for both of these comment areas on the Facebook page as separate items so you can just click and go straight through and make your comments. And for those who feel that if, you know, um, that that making the comments, what impact does it have? um, Just look at the opposing side of the aisle. The opposing side of the aisle often spends great amounts of time making comments on these proposed rules. And the reason they do that is because the the comments are open for Americans to weigh in so that these government officials can make comment, um, can make decisions based on what people want. They're not elected. So they need, uh, you know, they need input from constituents, people who don't, don't actually elect them. So Please take the time to make a comment. It doesn't take very long. And it's really important for uh, them to have the feedback from Americans who live in the state of Missouri who would be impacted by this proposed legislation. All right. So now it's my pleasure to welcome our guest, David Safavian. He is the deputy director of the American Conservative Union Foundation Center for Criminal Justice Reform. That's a mouthful. Hey, David, thanks for joining the show today.
4: Hey, Stacey. uh, Thank you for having me on. I'm sorry uh, we had some technical difficulties, but I'm really I'm so excited to be with you.
3: I'm glad to have you here because I'm really interested in the criminal justice reform. Um, We've actually had some White House guests on to talk about it. We've had White House staffers on to talk about it. We've also had think tank folks on to talk about it. And the range of feelings on this proposal run the gamut. And we really greatly respect the work of the American conservative union foundation. And we're so excited to hear you comment on it. So lay it out for us. What is being proposed here?
4: So uh, American conservative union, we have, we approach criminal justice reform in general from three different perspectives. One is that uh, if the government's going to spend our money, they need to spend it wisely, and they need to generate results. And that includes results uh, in the criminal justice field in our prisons. The second and the second important part is that every, every human life has value, and so we believe every human life deserves some measure of human dignity. But the most important one is public safety. Um, any proposal that we support has to advance in public safety and make us safer in our neighborhoods and communities. We've been working with the White House and with congressional leaders to come up with a bill that accomplishes all three of those goals. And uh, President Trump has in, embraced it, Uh, the Republicans and some Democrats in Congress have embraced it and we're moving forward. The legislation is called the first step act.
3: So we've had some people come on and say that the first step act is actually just going to take um, criminals by the hand and smack their wrist ever so gently. And it will encourage more crime because violent offenders go on to violently reoffend in ever escalating kind of turns. Um, And, and so, Future lives will be lost. Future victims of of violent crime will be able to thank the First Step Act for that. What what is your response to that?
4: So our response is that 95 percent of the people sitting in prison will eventually return home when they return home. They're coming back to our neighborhoods and our communities. The real question on the table is, do we want them to come home as better people than when they went to prison? Uh, You know, there is there is a a mentality among some that we just lock them up and throw away the key. Well, if that's the case, then every person that commits any infraction should go away for life so that we can make our neighborhood safer. We know that that's not possible. It's not a good idea. Uh, It costs a lot. And if we don't provide these folks in prison with the incentives to, to improve themselves, right, to deal with. their their opioid addiction, their anger management addiction, or their anger management issues, um, to understand right from wrong and to learn their lessons. If we don't do that, then what happens is these people come out worse than when they went in, and then they do become a public safety danger, a greater public safety danger. Uh, This approach has been tried in red states across the country, and it works. And I can give you a great example. In Texas, 12 years ago, they were facing a problem where they were going to have to build four more prisons. And the governor at the time was Rick Perry, who's now a member of President Trump's cabinet. And Rick Perry got Democrats and Republicans together, and he said, I'm not building four more prisons. Come up with a better way. So what they did was they um, uh, took um, those people, particularly nonviolent offenders, but, but really across the board, and they sped their way through the, the system a little bit. And by doing so, you have fewer people locked up and fewer people you've got to pay for it Keep them incarcerated. They then took those savings and put it into exactly the type of programs that we're working on in First Step Act um, to to improve them. Uh, you know, again, from the addiction perspective and the anger perspective, and their you know the ethical moral perspective. What did we see? Well, we saw that incarceration rates dropped, but we also saw that recidivism rates dropped. People were less prone to come out of prison, and uh, uh, reoffend again. And those are the people that, you know, the reoffenders are the ones that really, um, make our neighborhood safe. So they cut down, uh, recidivism by about 23%. So they, they reduce that group of people who are, are, con- or are, are returning criminals. At the end of the day, though, it all mattered, what matters most is public safety, right? Well, mm-hmm. Texas, after implementing this, has the same crime rate as it did in 1967. It's got a historically low crime rate. So we've made Texas neighborhoods safer. We've saved $2 billion. We've closed eight prisons. We haven't built four more. We've cut down on the incarceration rate, keeping families together. Oh, and by the way, we've reduced recidivism. It's a win-win-win. And what First Step Act does is it applies the same principles that they've tested in Texas and South Carolina and Georgia and Mississippi and Utah, and they apply them to the federal government. The one thing that I would say to to my friends, and, you know, this is a family disagreement, right? You know, conservatives can come up on both sides of the issue. Here's the thing. Right now, today, without any changes, 43% of the people coming out of federal prison end up back in prison after five years. And our view at American Conservative Union is only a government program can fail 43% of the time and go unchanged. We've got to come up with a better way, and we've got the data We've got the, the, the approach that has been proven to work, and we want to make it work for everybody, not just for people in Texas.
3: Okay, so thank you for that answer because I'm, I need that to be a part of this conversation because the concern for future individuals who might be impacted by repeat criminals, especially those who commit violent crime, it's a, a serious issue. And d- dealing drugs may not be violent initially. I mean, you're just handing someone something. They're handing you some money. But the impact of drug addiction on this country is really it's unparalleled with the new rise in the opioid crisis. And we need to understand when we're doing something like this, obviously, there'll be unintended consequences. But there will also be um, things that we could have foreseen had we really taken a good look. And it sounds to me like what you're saying is you now have a proven track record of success with this model. What stands between the president actually, instead of thinking of it or inching of it, actually going full bore and putting this into motion?
4: So we've got a couple of challenges. Um, The biggest challenge is that there are some on both sides of the aisle who oppose First Step for a couple of reasons, and they fall into two primary categories. The first is um, it's, it's a very small group of Republicans that really do believe in the lock them up and throw away the key mentality, that we just throw human beings away. Um, I know that sounds harsh, but it, it's true. There's, you know, a life a life sentence for uh, dealing marijuana makes zero sense to anybody. It doesn't make us any safer, but it costs a lot of money, and it, you know, it, it is an affront to human dignity, and it splits families. So you've got that category. You also have, and I, I find it a little more troubling, but maybe I'm biased. I am part of the American Conservative Union. Uh, you have some on the left.
3: We like you guys, by the and, way. And the we're, 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 we're down with that, the American Conservative Union. <laughs>
4: um, you have some on the left that look at this from a different perspective, from two different views. One is um, they hate the thought of giving Donald Trump and congressional Republicans a win. Uh, you know, this has been a longtime issue for a bunch of us in the conservative movement. But it's also been a long-time issue for, for those, you know, who we disagree with most of the time on the left. Uh, and they hate the idea that Barack Obama couldn't get any criminal justice reform or prison reform legislation through in his eight years. And after two years, Donald Trump is ready to, to crack the code and get legislation passed. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, they, you know, they, it is noteworthy that the people that oppose this bill the strongest are Kamala Harris and Cory Booker, and Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders because they are looking at running against Donald Trump and they want to have an issue rather than uh, having a solution um, I, I think that's one of the biggest differences as a general proposition between you know, conservatives and liberals is we're less about words and we're more about results um, those folks would rather have the words and the political issue than they would to have a, an outcome that that really does help families of all colors of all socioeconomic classes all across the board.
3: We saw that with immigration as well. I mean, totally off topic, David, but you know it's true. Um, When President Trump proposed to basically eliminate the DACA issue, the dreamer people, basically all of them legalized. 3.8 million new citizens with all the rights that the rest of us on the right had said, you can't give them vote. You can't, you don't do it. He said, I'll give you all of that. I just want wall funding. And they wouldn't do it because that's a huge issue for them as well. They need DREAMers. They need DACA recipients. Those are great issues to run on in 2020. Um, I, I, I find it sad because what you're describing to me, David, and I'm speaking to David Savabian, He's the deputy director of the American Conservative, Union's Foundations, Found- Conservative Union Foundation Center for Criminal Justice Reform. He, we're speaking about criminal justice reform and the SAFE Act. I, these are people. So I think, you know, I'm one of those law and order type folks myself, but I also understand that for, for a family member who may have a person who's incarcerated, if, you know, you have a family member who's incarcerated, that person is in on a low-level drug offense, you don't see that person as someone who should have the key thrown away on them. You see that person as someone who, if they could just get out and learn some skills, they could be back in your family, be a part of your life and be a contributing member to society. And that should trump... You know issues for 2020, don't you think?
4: Boy, I would hope so. Um, and you know, let me well, in. In full disclosure, I have been a guest of a federal gated community. I've been inside, and I've seen what little programming there is. I've seen how people that that make mistakes come out, and they're 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 just thrown out there. Um, they don't change when they're in prison. They don't take up the opportunities because, quite frankly, the Bureau of prison is not good at, at providing those types of programs. And, and look, as conservatives, we tend to recoil at the word programs, right? It just sounds like a big government solution. Mm-hmm. But what we're really talking about is how do you get people off their opioid addiction, right? How do you get people mentally prepared so that when, they, when somebody cuts them off on the road, they don't um, take a violent action, right? How do, how do you get them ready to come back to society and, and really be a productive member of society. If we don't do anything, all we're doing is abandoning those 1.8 million people who are in prison right now, and and you know, abandoning those people um, may not sound great, you know, it kind of has that social safety net sound, and that's not my point. The point here is that if we abandon those, if we don't give them the ability to fully reintegrate into society, guess what? They become those predators again. That's that's the most important thing. The First Step Act, just like the legislation in Texas and Georgia and Utah and South Carolina and others, makes the communities, will make our communities safer.
3: Thank you so much. David Safavian, Deputy Director of the ACU's Foundation Center for Criminal Justice Reform. We'll be back with more right after this. What does it take to live an uncommon life? Here's former Super Bowl winning coach Tony Dungy with today's Uncommon Moment.
5: Have you ever been jealous of someone? Maybe your coworker got the position you felt you deserved, along with the raise. Maybe your neighbor invited you over to see the new luxury car, or maybe your roommate got the newest iPad and keeps showing off all the cool apps. Here's the thing, jealous people obsess about the object of jealousy, believing that if they get what someone else has, then they'll be fulfilled. Instead of building others up, jealousy wants to destroy them. The moment jealous thoughts run through your mind, ask God to take them away. Never let jealousy take hold. It always leaves a bitter taste in your mouth.
3: Tony Dungy, author of the popular Uncommon book series. Discover more at
2: CoachDungy.com. That's CoachDungy.com.
0: Hello, I'm James. I couldn't stop the drug use. I had made it up in my mind that I wouldn't see 21. Teen Challenge has given me a hope. This is a place of restoration and a place of true freedom. If you know an adult or teenager who's struggling with a chemical addiction, Teen Challenge can help. Call us today at 417-581-2181 or reach us online at teenchallengeusa.com. This is Urban Family Talk. Hello AFR listeners, my name is Vladimir. I received my Operation Christmas Child shoebox during a harsh winter in Ukraine where I grew up. My favorite item was minty dental floss. I remember thinking, wow, I guess they have interest in candy in America. I want children to experience the same unconditional love I did at the age of nine. You can get involved by visiting afr.net and clicking on the Operation Christmas Child banner today.
1: I'm Chad Pergram with the Speaker's Lobby. The federal deficit is spiking of a staggering 17%. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell says a boost in defense spending helped hike the deficit. Still, McConnell says he'd like to, quote, spend as little as possible. The Kentucky Republican attributed deficits to entitlement spending. That's true, as entitlements are the biggest drivers of the debt commanding nearly 70 cents of every dollar that Washington spends. It wasn't that long ago that House Speaker Paul Ryan hounded the Obama administration about skyrocketing deficits. The Speaker warned about the cost of Obamacare. He engineered a balanced budget plan called the Path to Prosperity. Under Ryan's proposed math, when he was a key figure on the House Budget Committee, deficits would shrink. But in one of Ryan's proposals, he double-counted Obamacare. On one side of the ledger, the Wisconsin Republican repealed Obamacare. On the other side, Ryan used revenue generated by Obamacare to help curb deficits. Now President Trump wants a five percent across the board cut, but that just goes into the president's budget proposal. It's a non-binding wish list, which he'll send to Capitol Hill and one that Congress never acts upon. With the Speaker's Lobby, Chad Pergram, Fox News.
0: Welcome back to Stacy on the Right on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk.
2: Kamala Harris is right in those, that quote you just played, Americans are not only tolerant, they're amazingly generous and charitable, uh, but we're starting to feel like this is a con man preying on our charity. We've been quite charitable for the last several decades, taking in more refugees than the rest of the world combined. And it's not they're not always refugees. I mean the fact that so many these caravans one is hooking up with another and they're coming from all these different countries. At some point the problem isn't one specific isolated problem with one country. Um, the problem is that all of these countries are dysfunctional. The problem is is who the people are who are coming. If we overwhelm our country with even more millions of Latin Americans, eventually we just become another failed Latin American state.
3: That was Ann Coulter, and uh, the points she's making there are brilliant, uh, but it's, it's also a matter of common sense. Which seems to be in short supply in Washington D.C. Uh, as of as of really this moment for the past couple of decades, as it pertains to immigration policy. And people on both sides of the aisle are responsible for this debacle. Anytime there's a caravan of people, whether it's six hundred people or a thousand people, we have to be concerned about that. Now, I want to get to um, some information. I'm gonna I'm gonna have to give it to you in chunks because it's a huge piece. But I want to lay out for you a bit of a uh alternative reasoning behind this now i've i'm on the record of saying i think the democrats are involved and this is some ploy for the you know midterms to kind of midterm surprise you have this caravan marching in america and it might motivate latin americans who are american citizens to vote uh for the democrats and that's a plausible theory it's been raised by many others you know so it's this it's not unique to me but there's also uh another possibility and I found this this morning and I thought to myself, way, wait, 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 wait. So first of all, we'll have some audio for you later of Vice President Mike Pence saying that the funding for the people who are in the caravan, they're funded. They were enticed to join the caravan by by cash payments. It comes from Venezuela. So you might think, oh, um, okay, Venezuela. Well, what's up with that? Well, I'll just give you a little teaser here. You've got financed by Venezuela but prompted by a partnership between Venezuela, China, and Russia and all of them being upset by trade moves made by the president of the United States. So this is an election interference tool brought to you by those three nation states uh, operating in concert because they're upset with Donald Trump. Remember his primary campaign issue and the issue he's governing on is immigration. So, President Trump and Secretary Mnuchin sanctioned Venezuela and cut off their access to expanded state oil revenue. Venezuela needs more money. China and Russia are already leveraged to the gills in Venezuela and hold 49% of Citgo as collateral for loans outstanding. China and Russia now need to loan more directly. However, China cannot engage in economic interference with Venezuela or they risk losing access to the U.S. banking system. Therefore, all current Chinese aid to Maduro comes in the form of IOUs. These ongoing loans are likely impossible to be repaid. So we're going to take just one quick step away from this for a second and go to the phones. We have Ed in Tennessee. Ed, thank you for calling the show today.
5: Thank you for having me. Thank you for taking my phone call. Sure. I just wanted to say that I do listen to you all the time, and you do a great job, Stacey.
3: Thank you. I appreciate uh, that. I just wanted to
5: call in about that gentleman about the prison reform.
3: Yes, yes.
5: That right there is so desperately needed. Uh, the reason why I'm saying it is because uh, about 30 years ago, I served time in prison myself in Missouri. Hmm. And when I got out, all they pretty much gave me was some money that was left in my account, a pair of uh, clothes that were on my back, and a change of clothes, bus ticket to send me to. The town I was going to go to the halfway house in and says, good luck. Um, and sent me on my way. Wow. They didn't hardly do anything else. And where I, I, man, when I was in man, uh, man's, uh, programs that they had and all that, um, I pretty much kept myself busy in schooling. And working while in, okay. Yes, they had a uh, pre-release program to prepare, but preparing is uh, doesn't go far enough, okay.
3: So, do you when, do you agree with what but, he was proposing? Because I, I thought he really laid it out, kind kind of. He had a lot of detail there on what what they're hoping to do. Do you think yeah, it will help?
5: Yes, yes, it will help. But what needs to be most of, because I'm just going by experience myself, Stacy, okay? It wasn't until I got out and I started really getting myself in, um, really plugged in to God's Word and letting God's Word change me from the inside out. Mm-hmm. What really needs to go on in prisons today is getting a, uh, a program in there that will allow the inmates to really get into the word mm-hmm. and let that word change them from the inside out. Mm-hmm. Because if they get changed by God's word, they're gonna come out a totally different person than when they went in. And I'll guarantee you, when they come out, they they know they they can be a better person than people that have never been in. Yes, it's yes, it is very close to my heart about this because I'm living proof of it. And if it wasn't for God's word getting in me and changing me, I would have been back in. I was wow. determined to stay out, but God finally got a hold of me and got me straightened out. And I finally submitted myself to the Lord. And you know what? Today, I've been to Bible school. I'm an ordained minister now.
0: And, wow. I'm way,
5: and I'm turning around, and I'm speaking to people, going, uh, going through those situations, speaking to them about God's Word. Hmm. And on top of that, I tore up my first family. I helped tear it up. But God helped me with that by giving me another family. This is my third marriage, and I've and I'm just, and thankfully God has changed me and replaced what God what Satan t- uh, stole from me. He has replaced.
3: Wow. It, and, and and he well, says that he the Bible says yeah. that he will restore what the locusts have eaten. Wow, wow. Thank you so much, Ed, for calling and for sharing your personal testimony. And I think one of the best endorsements for any policy is when someone like yourself who's been through this comes along and says, we need it, but we need even more. Um, I wish we could be where we were 20 years ago where a faith-based initiative would not be immediately separation of church and state because you're so right, Ed, about the the need for our prison inmates to have the opportunity to, to know God. and And they're so desperate for it. But it, it seems as if the way our culture is moving, you, the only time you can get to God is in prison, and now they're even clamping down on that. Ed, thank you for calling the show today, and and for your kindness uh, about the show. Thank you, I really appreciate that. Um, I just you could hear the emotion in his voice. We need this so badly, and I, I'm I'm very law and order. You know, if you've listened to this show for any amount of time, you've heard me, you know, drop the hammer on on. Uh, Any number of issues where I feel like people are breaking the law or they're flouting the law or our legislators are not enforcing the law and it's wrong. But we also have that these are real people. You know, I go back to what I said in the first segment, which, by the way, um, there was a question. I so in forgiving someone, if that person's abusing you, forgiving them sets you free. But it doesn't mean you have to continue to be in relationship with them. And when I was talking about cutting people out of my life, I'm just talk- these these people haven't abused me per se, um, but they have deeply offended me or hurt me, and I I want to cut them out. And that is not that I've I've been told God doesn't want me to do that. So that's what I meant. There's a clear delineation when there's abuse or repetitive bad behavior and no acknowledgement on the other person's part. Forgiveness sets you free, but it does not mean you have to still be in relationship. So please don't don't um, take those two things to be the same. But I have to say. Uh, I, I hadn't any idea that the interview with David Safavian would bring about a call like Ed's, but if if there's anything we know, it's that some of the problems we're seeing are because of the government. Some of them are because we've had a knee-jerk reaction to an increase in violent crime. But the data that, that David shared about the recidivism rates going down and them closing all of those prisons and the lowering of the prison population in Texas, which... Texas is a huge state, huge driver of our national economy, and it's a wonderful experimentation point for almost anything you might be wanting to do. And this is as the founders intended. One state takes the step of trying out something new, and in that state, that, that becomes the program that those citizens are willing to get behind. And then after some years, you can see the results, which can then be spread out across the country. And if you think about how many people are incarcerated for something minor, a low-level offense, but they're spending 20 years in prison. Those are wasted lives and these are Americans who could be contributing on the outside, but they need help like David from I'm sorry, like Ed from Tennessee just shared. They need help in order to um in order to become those contributing members of society. So it's such a blessing to hear from him and I just, you know, I'm so grateful for a call like that today to kind of uh, bookend what we had with, uh, the deputy director from ACU, David Safavian. Um, so I want to, um, I want to kind of keep going with this information about the migrant horde. And I know we're moving through some topics pretty quickly today, but I want to, I want to keep, I want to get everything in, uh, cause today's Thursday. So I'll just have Friday to get the last bit of information for the weekend. And then we're in the weekend where we are coasting wild and free without political stuff. And we're preparing our homes and, and disconnecting from social media and going to church on Saturday or Sunday, whatever your, whatever your thing is so that we can be well rested and prepared for next week. So we want to be all things in good order. Um, I I have to say uh, I was really surprised by this going back to the kind of, Impetus, these are all the steps, according to this writer over at uh, Sundance, you guys know Sundance over at the conservative treehouse. These are all the steps that led up to this migrant caravan financed by Venezuela. Now remember, China owns 49% of Venezuela's state-run PDVSA energy production. It's a collateral system where Beijing takes oil as payment for prior loans the Maduro regime cannot pay back. With the crippling Treasury Department sanctions President Trump put on Venezuela last year, Trump has actually financially punched Maduro and Jinping hard. So now you've got Mike Pence on national television pointing the finger directly at Venezuela. And if you think about it, Sundance's assertion here makes utter and complete sense. Might have given the Democrats a little bit too much credit here. So here's how he says this thing goes down. I told you, first of all, about the sanctions on Venezuela that cut off their access to expanded state-owned oil revenue. Then, according to Sundance, number two is China's geopolitical ally, Russia, already being squeezed with losses in energy revenue because of Trump's approach towards oil, LNG, which is natural gas, and coal. So Trump, through allies including Saudi Arabia, the European Union, France, North Africa energy, and our own domestic production, has Trump has had a huge influence on global energy prices. It's as if he came into the room like a strong man and put a stranglehold on the energy and basically said, while he's strangling it and holding it to, to his domination, I'm going to move these pieces around to benefit the United States and to hurt our adversaries. Now, allies in some areas, but remember, when we're talking geopolitics, we can be best friends on one issue, but on other issues, we're tooth and nail, we're tooth and dagger, we're against each other. So additionally, President Trump is demanding that NATO countries, specifically Germany, stop supporting financial dependence on Russia. You remember that? He was at that breakfast and he said, why would Germany give their natural gas business to Russia When we are your closer ally and partner and we have natural gas that we would have sold to you and we wouldn't have put strings on it that are not beneficial to the people of Germany. Y'all remember that? And, And the media focused on the fact that they were supposed to be having a friendly photo op and Trump was talking business. But those of us who have half a brain or even, you know, two or three synapses firing instead of billions, all the rest of us were like, thank you so much. Golf clap. Thank you, President Trump. Don't photo op. You can have that any day. Look online for photo ops between previous presidents and these guys, and that'll satisfy your need for photo ops. If you're going to sit there and talk, why don't y'all talk business? That's what Donald Trump was there to do. So meanwhile, and directly connected, Russia is bleeding out financially in Syria. Remember, the largest military operator in Syria right now is Russia. They also have the largest number of independent operators, mercenaries, which General Mattis has been mowing down and killing like he's operating in the wrath of God. He has been mercilessly killing these mercenaries. So have I teased you enough? Well, there's more. If you're saying goodbye to us right now, I say God bless you from the heartland. Forgiving is hard, but we all have to do it. Join with me in being poor in spirit, but rich in God's mercy and offering forgiveness to our enemies. And... God bless you and have a great evening. If you're sticking around, onenewsnow.com, news and information is coming at you right after this music. God bless.